0: Our passage this morning centers around expectations of what happens next for Jesus' followers. What is kingdom life like for them? I think it has a lot of relevance to what we may be thinking about even this morning. The disciples and Jesus are getting close to Jerusalem and they're on their way to Passover. And the disciples are thinking this would be a great time for the Messiah to bring deliverance. I mean, Passover, New Exodus, this is amazing. And all along the way, all these things are happening that are telling them, this is it. A blind beggar just cried out and called Jesus the Son of David. Uh, This weighty title that these expectations are coming to pass. And when Jesus just dined with Zacchaeus, he said, today salvation has come to this house. And so the disciples are thinking, wow, this is it. We're coming to Jerusalem and Jesus is going to begin his kingdom reign. And Jesus, what he says in our passage that we'll be looking at in a moment, he says it in response to their expectation that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus has to correct their expectations of what happens next in following him, of what kingdom life is going to look like. And I think we can find ourselves needing the same instruction, don't we? We think of Jake and Haley, just baptized, following Jesus. What happens now? What does it look like to live as one of Jesus' followers? We think of ourselves, many of us, who have been baptized maybe a long time ago and maybe wondering, is this really how the Christian life is supposed to be? Or maybe some of you are just checking these things out and wondering, what does it really mean to live as a Christian in this world. Well, our passage this morning is going to address those expectations. It's going to show us what kingdom faithfulness looks like wherever we are on this journey of walking with Jesus. And so I'd like to uh, read our passage. We're looking today at Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. If you'd like to follow along in a church Bible, it's on page 878. It's also printed on page eight in your bulletin. And I want to say a disclaimer uh, just before I begin because no matter how many times I ran through this, it just kept happening. This, is, this passage is going to use the term mina as a, as a currency term. And there are different ways to say it. Mina, mina, mana. <laughs> there are all these ways. I probably won't stick with one throughout. I keep messing it up. So I'm just giving you the disclaimer so I can just keep going whether I say mina or mina, all right? So there we go. But now we can hear the important part. That's God's word. Luke 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, "'Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. "'For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. "'You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow.' "'He said to him, "'I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. "'You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit "'and reaping what I did not sow.' Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. So far, the reading of God's word. As you can tell, it's a striking parable. And so why don't we pray and ask our Lord's help by the Spirit as we consider these things. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help this morning. We give you thanks for your blessings of of what we have already seen, the miraculous way in which you work in our lives and We are reminded that this morning you are continuing to do that supernatural work, even as your word goes forth. And so we ask that your spirit would illumine our hearts to hear and understand and believe your truth. We ask for help to better see our Lord Jesus and what it means to live faithfully while he's away. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, we'll consider this parable in three main points. Uh, We'll look at the story of kingdom faithfulness, the call of kingdom faithfulness, and the king of kingdom faithfulness. So story, call, king, if you like handles as we walk through these things. But first of all, let's consider the story of kingdom faithfulness, this parable as it unfolds. To help them understand what Jesus' kingdom rule will be like, Jesus skillfully draws upon a situation that they were familiar with. He tells of a nobleman who was journeying to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And in in Jesus' day, no one ruled in the Roman Empire without being appointed to do so by the emperor. And so about 40 years before Jesus' birth... Herod the Great had traveled to Rome to seek to become king of Judea, and that had taken place. So this is something they knew about and something they understood. And now we don't yet know the character of this nobleman, but we realize right away that his kingship is a contested kingship. Verse 14 says his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. And Jesus may be drawing upon something that had happened in the recent past. About, about four years before he was born, Herod's son, Archelaus, had made a similar journey. He had traveled to Rome to seek to take his father's place, but he was followed by a whole group of Jews who did not want him to become king, and they lobbied Caesar to deny his request. And so we know from the rest of this story, at least, that this nobleman does, in fact, become king, and he returns to reign. And in this context, then, of this contested kingship, the question really is, what are his servants supposed to do in this dicey situation? And so we see the servant's stewardship. Before this nobleman leaves, he calls his servants to him, and he gives them a fascinating responsibility— He gave them 10 minas, verse 13 said, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, a mina or a pound, as it's sometimes translated, was equivalent to about 100 days wages for an average worker. And so he basically gives them about three months salary as a gift for them to invest in. In today's terms, we could think around $15,000 ballpark. And he says, use this well, I'm gone. And notice how um, unspecific his instruction is. He's not setting a standard for what the profit must be. He's saying, here's the money. I want you to use it. And the implication is, use it how I would use it until I come back. And when he returns, we find that there are a variety of results. The first servant he speaks to has gained 10 more minus. I'm not great with numbers, so I checked this a bunch of times. That's a 1,000% increase. Um, And so you think he, you know, takes $15,000 and then has $150,000. The second responded that he gained five. That's still a 500% gain in what was given to him. And the servant's responses show this beauty of this humble stewardship that they were exercising. Notice they don't say hey, well, you were gone, I really worked it. I had a great team, we had a great plan, and we really made it happen. They say instead, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more or five minas more. Your mina, your resources grew into even more. And so we also, like we not only see their humble stewardship, but we also learn something about the noblemen in his response, he said to them in verse 17, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. This mina, three months' wages, to him was very little. And so we find out that this nobleman was a man of considerable wealth. But we also see that he was exceedingly generous, wasn't he? The first servant takes one mina, $15,000, and when the master comes back, he has over 150000 That sounds like a lot of money, right? I think to the children especially. Uh, the first thing I think is you can buy a lot of Lego sets for $150,000. But if we think about it in terms of what he's rewarded with, it's interesting, right? It, it wouldn't even get you near buying a house, would it? And yet, what is his reward? Ten cities. You can rule the West Coast because you had this increase and gained $150,000. The second, it's still astounding. He gained $75,000. A great reward would be a nice car, maybe a, a supercharged horse with some custom rims on your wagon or something. That, that would be nice, right? But no, five cities he's given. The nobleman sees their stewardship and he generously rewards them. And he rewards them more than monetarily. He rewards them with an amazing honor that they would rule under him over several cities. It's astounding. And so his response to them then sets us up for this striking contrast that we find when the third servant comes along. Everything changes. The third servant's response, it was actually the opposite of the nobleman's instruction, wasn't it? Engage in business while I'm gone. You can't do something more opposite than say, I kept it in a piece of cloth. (laughs) I put it in a cloth napkin or a handkerchief. It's just a cloth that's around the house. Good news. I put it in a piece of cloth and here it is. Storing it up is the opposite of engage with business until I return, isn't it? And he actually doesn't even store it very well. The safe way to deal with someone's money, if you were entrusted with it, would be to hide it, to bury it. But if you just kept it in a cloth, there are actually rules on the books that say you are liable for it if it is lost because you didn't do your due diligence in keeping that money. And so he's just failing here on every level. But really, the worst part is his assessment of the nobleman's character. Did you catch those words in verse 21? The reason he did this, he says, is because I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Now, it's likely that this servant thinks that he's issuing this nobleman uh, uh, a compliment In the broader culture, being a shrewd businessman, one who knew how to plunder others or gain at all cost, it was, much like in our day, admired. But nothing in the narrative supports that the nobleman is actually this way, does it? Instead, so far we've seen the opposite. He's giving generously and entrusting his servants with great honor. But the nobleman then takes this servant's assessment of himself to show his folly. It's as if he's saying, okay, if I were a severe man, a skilled robber baron who doesn't really care about other people, then what should you have done? You should have at least known that I would want to see more when I returned and you should have taken that money and you should have put it in the bank so at least there would be something to show for it. And so what he's showing here is even if your wrong assessment of me were correct, you were still not faithful with what I gave you. And so it goes on to then show us the servant's punishment. In response to his unfaithfulness, the money the nobleman gave him, the gift he had entrusted him with was taken from him and given to the one who had produced 10 more. And the nobleman responds with this overarching principle that the one who is faithful with what he has been given, he will receive even greater gifts. But those who are not faithful with these gifts will even lose what they have been given. And then the story comes full circle, doesn't it? In verse 27, we find these striking words. It says, but as for these enemies of mine, Who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Here we learn about the fate of those who hated the noblemen. And this is really startling language. It's not pleasant to think about anyone being slaughtered, which is another word for killed. Now, in the story, these are people who hated the nobleman. They were actively opposing his rule. And it was understood that in a society like that, this is what happens when regimes change. Because you can't have, on a human level, you can't have your own citizens actively opposing you in a monarchy like that. But this language, taken by itself, I think can give us an incomplete picture of Jesus and of God. Perhaps you're not sure about Christianity. Christianity. And passages like this are really unsettling. They give you pause. Even as Christians, I think these words rightfully make us stop and say, now, now, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is God really eager for the shedding of blood? Is he a ruthless killer, just like every other power-hungry dictator? Well, we can't answer all of that here. And if that's something you're wrestling with, I'd, I'd love to talk with you further, even afterwards. But I think by the end of this message, the picture of God's heart that's actually being given in this whole thing will be clearer. But can I invite you to keep listening to Jesus' words in this story by keeping in mind two things. First, since the final state that the Bible holds forth is one of paradise, where there is no more evil or wickedness or curse, then getting rid of evil in some way is a necessary part of that process. And deep down, we even long for true justice and true goodness to be our constant experience, don't we? But the second thing to keep in mind is that in a human context, destroying all of our enemies is filled with all sorts of problems as fallen people, isn't it? We have our own agendas. If we try and implement something like this, innocent people are often caught up along with those who are deserving of punishment. But the punishment of the enemies of God one day, it will not be done by a mere man. King Jesus' final reckoning, it will be right and just and good, and it will be a perfectly, perfectly fitting response to everything that has taken place. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but it puts this in the perspective of what the Bible holds forth as this ultimate destiny for those who oppose Jesus' rule. And so while this language is startling, what it does is it gets our attention, doesn't it? And it calls us to really ask a twofold question. There's kind of two plots going on in this story. How will you respond to Jesus as king? And then what will you do while he's away? That's really what Jesus is holding forth here. And so we've looked at the story of kingdom faithfulness. And now we'd move to our second point, the call of kingdom faithfulness the call of kingdom faithfulness. We'll we'll kind of answer those two questions in reverse as we spend the rest of our time together. What does this passage teach us about faithfulness while Jesus is away? Well, I want to briefly draw out three things that the text shows us about what Jesus' followers are called to do. The first is that kingdom faithfulness happens during contested kingship. Kingdom faithfulness for Jesus' followers, it it takes place during a time of contested kingship. Even though Jesus' kingdom had already been granted to him by the Father and he was there to claim it, like the nobleman who went away to the far country, there will be a considerable amount of time before Jesus returns and his reign is fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the meantime, what are things going to look like? There will be those who hate him and who do not want him to rule over them. And so what does that mean for us as Jesus followers? Well, what it means is this call to engage in business while he is away. It's not easy. It won't be easy. Think about the context in which these servants were working. And the people of the town, as they're going about their business with all this money that they knew servants wouldn't normally have, oh, you're working for that nobleman? (laughs) I don't want him to be king. In fact, I hope he never comes back and I don't want to do business with you or anyone who represents him. And that starts to make the third servant's response make a little bit more sense, doesn't it? It would be far safer It would be far easier in a context like that to just wait and see how it's all going to turn out, to wait and see if this nobleman even returns as a king. And this would have been startling to Jesus' disciples. Remember, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They thought they were about to start a life of ease. They were sizing up what thrones they would be sitting on as they were about to rule with Jesus. And yet he says, this will be a time of contested kingship. And this catches us, off, the, catches us off guard as well, doesn't it? Faithful stewardship that happens in this context of contested kingship, it will require faith on our parts. Faith that Jesus will return as the rightful king and faith that faithfully engaging in business while he's gone will be worth it when he comes. And so kingdom faithfulness, it happens during this contested kingship, but what does it look like? What does it look like to be faithful while the king is away? Well, secondly, kingdom faithfulness is using what he has given you. It's using what he has given you. Right from the start, these minas that they are given are not things that they produce themselves, are they? The nobleman didn't say, here's what I want you to do. Take all your stuff, and while I'm gone, see if you can make something out of it. See, impress me when I get back. No, instead, the nobleman gives his servants of his own resources. Here, I'm giving you what you need while I'm away. And then the call was actually so simple, wasn't it? Take what I have given you and now use what you have. Use what I have given you in a way that I would use it while I'm away. I think it's very easy for us when we think about what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus. We hear that term and our mind goes so quickly to all these things that aren't even a part of our lives. Things that we don't even have. A faithful follower of Jesus goes into full-time ministry. A faithful follower of Jesus is a missionary. A faithful follower of Jesus goes off to the mountains to study and pray for hours, even when I'm wondering how can I carve out 10 minutes in my day. A faithful follower of Jesus gives money, large sums of money that we don't even have right? And so it's so easy to think of these things that we don't have. And and while these things are not bad, these are ways of being faithful, what they often do is distract us from the question of how can we be faithful with what we do have? And that can be really discouraging. We often can think, if only this happened, then I could be faithful. If only I were married If only I had kids. If only I were retired and had more time, which I hear never really happens. If only I had the energy that I used to have, then I could really be faithful. Then Jesus would be pleased with me. But kingdom faithfulness, Jesus shows us here, it actually really begins by asking yourself, what has the Lord already given to me Am I doing business with it? Am I engaging with it while he's away? The job that you currently have, the income level you currently live at, your marriage, your parenting, your singleness, the body that you have now with the age that it is, with its strengths, with its weaknesses, with its energy, with its lack of energy, What about the neighbors that are living near you right now or the unbelievers who are in your life every day? Everything that we have has come to us from God. And faithfulness, kingdom faithfulness, means seeking to use the little that we have for him while he's away. And so kingdom faithfulness, it happens during this contested kingship. It's it's using what he has given you. And then third, kingdom faithfulness is not focused on results. It's not focused on results. I must confess that every time I read this story, my default is just to hear it in kind of a raw capitalist sort of way. The nobleman invests. He wants to maximize profits because, of course, that's how we must use our money. And he comes back to check on the income report. And in this way of thinking... When that creeps in, do you see what it does? It subtly causes us to focus on results. It makes the question of are you being faithful dependent upon what is the outcome of what your efforts have produced. We may think something like this. If I'm faithful in my fight against sin, then I'll have victory. and I won't be battling it anymore. If I'm a faithful parent then surely my children will become believers and they'll live good lives. If I'm faithful in loving others, it will work out. We'll have peace. They'll get saved. If I'm faithful in following the Lord, I'll feel close to him. I won't have these doubts or these struggles. Do you see how we're defining faithfulness based on the outcomes that it produces? But can I ask you to consider a few aspects of this story that show us that Jesus is really giving us a totally different picture than that way of thinking about faithfulness? Right away, we begin with the nobleman's command. It isn't turn a profit or show me what you've got. It's engage in business until I come. And it's just saying, don't do nothing. <laughs> don't set what you've been given by me to the side to wait to see how it's all going to turn out. But see what you have and use it. And then the way that these servants speak, it's just amazing to me. It's, it's like these mina, minas just grow on their own. It's they, in their response, Lord, your mina that has come from you, it has made almost by itself 10 minas more. Lord, the five minas they have made five, or the one minus has made five minus. The idea is if you just engage with these resources, using them, knowing that the king will return, they produce and they grow. And the nature of the reward, I think, is one of the most convincing things that helps us see that this was all about more than just profit or more than just results. If this nobleman were about the bottom line, he did some of the dumbest things you can imagine. (laughs) I mean, entrusting them with money to see if it would grow, that's a good idea. But then they produce this money, and why not just pay them? Why not just give them even a share of what they have earned? It would make far more economic sense to give them some sort of reward generously and then move on with all the wealth that you have gained. But what does he do? It's not a financial payout at all. He gave them cities to rule. He made them co-rulers in his kingdom. Why? Because what happened? While he was away, they engaged in business on his behalf. And they demonstrated that they will rule like he would rule that they have become the kind of people that he would want serving with him in his reign. And so if we think about that, kingdom faithfulness, it's not about the results as much as it's about the way that you engage while Jesus is away. That's what he's looking for. And that's what he's seeking to produce. We can be tempted to look around in our in the state of the broader church as a whole, we can look around at our nation or the world and we can think, what's happening? How is it ever going to be okay? I see all these things that feel like they're coming off the rails. And yet this call to kingdom faithfulness says, but but the Lord has given us a church, a body to engage with. Children who will be the next generation to care for and to love as the body of Christ and to raise up in the ways of the Lord. He's given us neighbors to actually love with our lives and share the gospel with. We can feel the result or the weight of the results of things like our marriage or parenting or relationships that are very important to us. And we can say, are these really all that they're supposed to be? We look at results again, but the call of kingdom faithfulness asks Can you rely upon the Lord in this interaction that's before you right now with this spouse, this child, this friend before you? And can you treat them in a Christ like way? We're prone to ask questions like Will I ever be free of this temptation? Will this trial ever go away? God, will you ever satisfy my deepest longings or will I always feel this emptiness? Jesus invites us into a walk of kingdom faithfulness that instead of framing things up this way says, Lord, can you give me the strength to use what you've given me to take just one more step, to fight one more time, to trust you one more moment or one more day while you're away? And in that kind of engagement, in that kind of faithfulness, what ends up happening? We find that the mina makes more, doesn't it? It may be not the result that we want. We're often looking for something big and noticeable and measurable But as Jesus says elsewhere, kingdom growth brings 30, 60, 100-fold yield in the life to come. But it also does in this life as well. A richness, a reward that can be hard to quantify, but it's no less true. In that kind of faithful engagement, what is he doing? He's making us into people who are like him who can share in his kingdom rule. And this story calls us to look ahead and it gives us a picture of what we have not yet experienced. That one day when King Jesus returns, we will find that there has been growth beyond what we can imagine. And we'll one day realize that through it all, he has been making us ready in his perfect way to share in his reward. Revelation 2 says that followers of Jesus who persevere to the end will not only rule cities, but they will rule the nations along with Christ himself. How? In becoming the royal priests that we were made to be through the work of Jesus, as his spirit brings that life fully to us one day. And so all of that really takes us back to the question at the beginning of the story. What is your response to, To this king. And it brings us to our third point the the king of kingdom faithfulness. We've seen the call of kingdom faithfulness, but now the king of kingdom faithfulness. The way Jesus tells this parable, it's absolutely brilliant. And one of the things that it does is it leaves us a little uncertain about the nobleman's character, doesn't it? You're kind of reading it throughout saying, okay, he seems like a decent guy. He gives them minas and then he rewards generously. I'm not really sure. Maybe the citizens who hate him, maybe they're onto something. Maybe that third servant is partially right. He's he's really seeking wealth for himself. And it ends with this striking imagery of the enemies being slaughtered before him. I think that Language ringing in our ears calls us to see the how much more aspect as this story continues to unfold. As it unfolds, as Jesus goes from telling this story to then entering Jerusalem, being hailed as king, and then killed on a cross. You see, while there's uncertainty about this nobleman's character, Jesus' actions make his heart and his rule very clear. He departed to secure a kingdom that was not about grasping, but that was all about giving. He left all the glory that he had that was rightfully his as the son of God, and he did not cling to it, but instead he emptied himself and he took on flesh And he did what we couldn't do. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And then he died the death that we deserved. You see, the Lord Jesus is the king who offered himself up to be slaughtered for those who were his enemies. People like you and me, who left to ourselves, would never want him to rule over us. We want to be on the throne Of our lives. And his ascent to the throne, the way he received the kingdom, was by the way of the cross. And the glorious news is that on that cross, he paid for all the times that you and I have rejected his rule in our lives or in our hearts. And all those times that we haven't faithfully stewarded the little that God has given to us. And what was his reward? What was he after? Was it all about profit? Was it all about gain? The reward was you. The reward was me. Those who trust him are brought into the riches of life with God that he alone deserved. And he's given us his spirit so that even now as we seek to walk faithfully with him, we could become more and more people who engage like him in this world. And while there will be judgment for all who reject him and reject his rule in their lives, Jesus has shown that he is the complete opposite of a severe man who is to be feared. Instead, he is the humble, loving, gracious, self-giving king who's to be loved and adored. And with a king like that, how can we not help but out of gratitude long to faithfully serve him? And a king who loves like that, he actually shapes all of our serving, all of our engaging. You see, we live in a world where people naturally think that Jesus is a king just like all the other kings, wanting control, wanting power, wanting to promote himself for his own gain. But when we engage faithfully with what he's entrusted us, when we engage in his business until he returns, our actions and our words, they say, no, he is different from all the rest. Come, receive him, love him, serve him. He has given himself for you so that you could gain it all. Let's pray that our Lord would help us be mindful of this and live this way until he comes. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by your word. We realize how often we are unfaithful. We're looking for our own gain, our own glory. We're thinking about things that aren't even ours. We're misconstruing your motives and even our Lord Jesus' heart. We thank you for your word of grace of how you have come to us in the Lord Jesus in, in love and grace and welcome and how you are empowering us even now by your spirit to live in a way that shows the love and grace of Christ to a needy and watching world. Will you strengthen us in this calling to take the little that we have and to engage with it while he is away with the sure and certain hope that he will come again one day and we will receive the fullness of all he has earned for us. This is all by your grace, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.